I heard a story um, 10, 15 years ago, maybe more than that, about a, a Western missionary living on the island country of Yap, which is in Micronesia. And for most of the year, uh, he lived amongst the islanders. It was more desirable to live down by the beach because that is where the fishing was and the community was and the outflow of fresh water was there. It was easy, easy to get uh, all of the things that you need. But each year, uh, during typhoon season, which is roughly three months, he would move his dwelling up, up, up the hill um, to get away from the lowlands. He was terrified that a typhoon would come and, and wipe everything out. Now, this Western missionary spent tremendous time and energy to move his dwelling every year, up one part of the year and down the other part of the year, and it was all to protect a few items like his books and his bedding and his, his, uh, his clothing and his dwelling. During storm season, he was always stressed out because of what might happen, who might get hurt, how it might affect his life, and how it might affect the lives of the people that he was there to love and to serve. His life became more and more stressful during the storm season because he had to walk down that hill every time he wanted to be in community or to do fishing, and then he had to walk back up that hill. And you know, you guys ever forget stuff at the house? Like, I'm always forgetting stuff. So, you know, he forgets his Bible when he's going to Bible study down. He's got to walk back up the hill. It just, everything becomes more complicated. Now, it's mid-20th century when this is all taking place. And by then, even the locals on the app get weather reports. They know when typhoons are coming. They see the radar of this big storm system coming through. He was just baffled. Why do you guys stay down here? Why don't you move up with me during storm season? And they said, listen, like, a storm like that only hits Yap every 10 to 12 years. It usually it says it's coming our way, but usually it just goes the other way. It goes right or left, and we get swells and wind and rain, but nothing usually happens. And so their mentality was to roll the dice on one out of 10 or 12, and his mentality was to be prepared every year and to be worried about what he couldn't control. Now, who was right? Which worldview are you more comfortable with? Are there things that are out of your control that seem to be controlling you by making you worry? On this third Sunday in Lent, we will hear Jesus speak directly to our worry and to our faith. And we'll hear him speak about those things in light of the Father's character. Let's hear what he has to say out of Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And again, if you're able, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. And you can always follow along in your text, in your, in your Bible. I encourage you to do that. Um, I really encourage you to do that when I'm preaching. Keep me honest. And also to, um, it just will help get it into your mind. But maybe for the reading part, if this is a familiar passage, I encourage you to close your eyes and just hear it. Hear it before you read it. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil or spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, help us. Help us with this challenging teaching that you've given us. Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts to hear it with, fresh, with a fresh hearing and to know what to do with it. Amen. You may be seated. Do not worry about your life as to what you'll eat, or for your body as to what you'll put on. I have so many questions, don't you? So many questions. In fact, at face value, we might have more than questions. We might have some strong feelings of disapproval. Don't worry about food and drink, Jesus. Tell that to people who are starving. Don't worry about clothes, Jesus. Tell that to people who don't have enough to keep warm tonight. Don't worry about your life, Jesus. Tell that to people in Ukraine or Yemen or anywhere there's violence and injustice and abuse. Yeah, I have questions too, and I have feelings about this passage. But I also want to ask that we consider the source before casting judgment. This is not Chris Eldridge teaching this passage. It's not some other talking head it's no one other than Jesus. The Jesus who emptied himself of his divine privilege to become human in a moderately poor family of no significant privilege. This teaching comes from the Jesus who tells us to feed and clothe the poor, the Jesus who heals the sick, the Jesus who chooses to come of all times in history to a nation that is under the oppression of the Roman Empire. This teaching comes from an illegally arrested, falsely convicted, brutally crucified, risen from the dead, now reigning Jesus. So there has to be more to this teaching. It can't just be a callous and insensitive, don't worry, be happy kind of message to people who are really suffering. And if it is a callous, don't worry, be happy sort of message to people who are suffering, then I think that would warrant us rethinking our worship of Jesus. And that has to be on the table when we study a passage like this, if we're going to be intellectually honest. And I want to encourage us to be intellectually honest. So let's do our part and think well 
about the text. And the first of all, where do we start? There's lots of places. Let's start with some words like the word worry or anxiety. In Greek, this word is merimnate. That's a tongue twister, merimnate, which is this connotation of sleeplessness and obsessive worry, paralyzing worry. Obsession is another way of thinking about it. It's not just like, oh, I'm worried if I forgot to lock the front door today when I, you know, went to work. You know, this is, this is something that's just keeping us up at night. It's, it's paralyzing. And then let's look at the context of the passage. Notice how it begins with the phrase, for this reason I tell you. That almost made it into my, that was in the top two of my sermon titles. That would have been a good one. For this reason I tell you. I think the whole thing hinges on what for this reason means. So for what reason is Jesus talking about? For the reason that he explains in the text that I preached on last week, which is Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And the gist of that passage, if you miss it or you just need a refresher, is about banking on earthly solutions to solve our anxiety, to solve our worry, rather than banking on treasures or solutions that are rooted in God. It's about being generous with our possessions more than hoarding them out of fear or worry that we won't have enough. And it's ultimately about the reality that you simply can't serve two masters. I can't do it. You can't do it. No one can really do it. You can't serve material possessions or your career or your reputation and serve God. And the question last week is like, where are we going to put our trust? There was kind of fork in the road in Jesus' teaching last year, or last week. It is for that reason that Jesus says, don't be worried, don't be obsessed, don't be paralyzed with anxiety about what you'll eat or drink or to how you look on the outside to your appearance to other people. So Jesus is not teaching this to people who are starving. He's not saying, oh, you're starving? Don't worry about it. Oh, you're thirsty? Ah, don't worry about it. Have faith. He's not saying, um, you have no clothes? You'll be fine. Look at the birds. I mean, that would be, that would be callous. This is, this is, by the way, a huge difference between Judaism and Christianity and the many other uh, religions and philosophies out there that, that teach people either to deny the reality of pain there's lots of folks that want to tell you, you know, pain's not real. Suffering's not real. It's all in your head. And if you can get to a place where you don't, you can transcend that, boom, that's the goal of life. No, Christianity says pain and suffering are extremely real. Um, the, other, the other thing that, that people want to teach you is that, you know what? None of this matters. And you can escape this horrible physical life and go off to a spiritual reality somewhere else. But following Jesus is inherently physical. It is earthy. Remember, Jesus' whole mission statement in the beginning of his ministry is recorded in Luke's gospel, is rooted in Isaiah 61, and, and he says, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to declare the favorable year of the Lord, which always has to do with physical, political, real change and healing. You can't tell me Jesus was 
just preaching something that, you know, you're just going to float away in the spirit. Don't worry about the physical world. And it's an often overlooked detail, by the way, that the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we're dealing with tonight does not say, don't worry about other people's lives as to what they will eat or to what they will drink or to what they will put on. And it doesn't say, don't worry about other people's bodies. When Jesus and his disciples encountered over 5,000 hungry people in the wilderness, he said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus does not deny the necessities of life. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, he tells us there's six stanzas in the Lord's Prayer. One-sixth of the Lord's Prayer is saying, hey, this is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, give us, give us this day our daily bread. Whenever we pray that stanza, we are saying not just give me the daily necessities of life, but give us, the world, my, my worldwide sisters and brothers, the daily necessities of life. And we, when we broke that passage down, we know that bread and water in the ancient world were kind of like the staples. They're kind of metaphorical for everything basic in life. So when we're praying that prayer, we're praying, Lord, give us food that we need, shelter that we need. What else do we need? Relationships. That's the definition of poverty is to, to not have good relationships, have relationships that we need. Everyone needs to know that they're loved and to have someone to love. So these are the basic things that we're praying when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to do that. You can't make the argument then that he doesn't care about those things. And the reality is there's no shortage of basics, that there's more than enough food and shelter and resources for every man, woman, and child to, on, on this very day. And the issue is one of distribution. It's an issue of greed. The issue is that of many of us overindulge at the cost of those who have little or nothing. And the, the issue is extremely complex. Don't worry, I'm not going down a rabbit hole on that because it's just... But we need to keep coming back to it and having it poke us in the side or wherever you're... I don't like getting poked in the side. But like wherever your annoying spot is, I think that's an important place for Jesus to annoy us, to get under our skin a little bit. Jesus is saying to those of us who have means, don't obsess over losing what you have at the expense of seeking the kingdom of God. And when we seek the kingdom of God, we're going to be about helping other people. In fact, I think there's a good argument to be made that Jesus is warning us against worry or anxiety or obsession He's warning us about not being content with what we have when we already have enough. Let me say that again. I think, I think that this teaching might be more about Jesus warning us against fear and anxiety and obsession about not being content with what we have when we already have what we need. Let me just flesh that out a little bit. You may recall from last week that Jesus warns us against storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, right? And then he counsels us, instead of doing that, to store up treasures in heaven where the corrosion and corruption of the world can't take the reward away. And you might recall me saying that the Greek word for storing up treasure has the same root. So storing up, and treasure has the same root. Remember, we've got thesaurus, and thesaurus is a treasury of words. Okay, so those words, one's a verb, one's a noun, that's the same root. Storing up 
and treasuring. It's the same Greek root word. And here's why that matters. He warns us against putting our trust in money or clothing or reputation or family wealth or career success or even pursuits of justice and religion. And he encourages us to make Jesus and his ways our treasure in life. Here's why I mention all that. He's saying, don't obsess about your whole life held in the balance by what you can store up in terms of food security or drink security. Wine was the most preservable liquid that you could drink in the ancient world. Other cultures had beer. Beer's actually older than wine, just so you know. Um, but, but wine in the first century Palestine was the one that you could store up and you could have both you could build up wealth by having stores of wine and you can have literally stuff to drink for a long time. He says, don't obsess or lose, lose sleep over your clothes. Clothes were another way of showing status. You could, if you had extra cash, you could bank your money in linens and clothing and store them up. But they also, whew, they show you off, don't they? And I want to suggest that this is more than having the basics of food and water and clothing. I think that this is about people who have put their trust in chasing worldly solutions of fulfillment, who have a commitment to comfort and a commitment to appearances as their motivation in life. And of course, we can do that in more than the things that we eat and the things that we wear. I mean, we're Pacific Northwest people, most of us, right? And like, it's actually cooler to, I don't know, like if you have the coolest hoodie, it might be better than the best three-piece suit, right, guys? Or, you know, we put our money in other places, mountain bikes and cool skis and like all kinds of outdoor stuff, but we know what, we're ta- what he's talking about. We can put our status in all kinds of other things and get worried about losing it or not having the best stuff. The reason I say this is that line in verse 27, you can look at it yourself. Most of our English translations have something like, and who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to his or her life? And that is a true statement, really. Does worry ever get you an extra day? In fact, medical people out there will probably tell you worry might take days off your life, right? Therapists, thank you. But in Greek... It is much more specific, this sentence. And it literally says, who of you by being worried could add a single cubit? That is 18 inches. Who of you by being worried could add a single 18 inches to his height? How did we get, how did we get the other translation? Isn't that interesting? Metaphorically, you can make it work. It totally... It totally works. Um, but literally, I wanted you to hear it, what it literally says. And, and it changes the way I start thinking about this passage. If Jesus is talking about status things, like if you already have enough, and he's talking about having the best food and wine stored up and the right clothes, and all of a sudden, what's another vain thing? Your height. It was, it's always been a thing. Like nobody ever in the Disney, like you never hear the, the, uh, the, the short, dark, handsome prince, right? Uh, there goes my modeling career, all 5'8 of me. You know, like, 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 like being tall was always a thing, and being tall was desirable. In fact, okay, just remember when they're looking for the king, right? And Samuel's there, and you see all the brothers of David. Oh, this tall and handsome, and Saul is always a head and shoulders better. Little David gets it. Yeah, short guys. Um, 
People are attracted. It's an attraction thing. It's an tall thing. And so the point is that in context, Jesus is addressing people who are all worked up about not having the right food and drink and clothes and appearances. People who are treasuring treasures on earth. And whether we translate, this is, this is what's really cool about, is that I showed you something cool about the Greek sentence, but listen to this. This is important to know. Um, just in case your head is spinning, why in the heck do they translate English? It's so weird. Do I really know anything? If you're one of those people like, now I feel like I don't know anything, just listen. Whether we translate verse 27 as worry about, it, about adding a single hour to your life or 18 inches to your height, the point is exactly the same. Worry can't change the things that are out of your control. Worry can't change anything. It can't make me taller. And it can't make you live longer. And that's a fact. Whether, however you change the translation of that, that sentence. This is an important message for everyone. But consider how relevant it is for following Jesus in an affluent culture like our culture. One of the prayers of the early church asked God for protection from two things, poverty and too much wealth. Have you ever prayed for protection from too much wealth? That's just not in our cultural water that we're drinking. But that was a common thing in the ancient world. People were weary of what wealth might do to their character because you can cover up a whole lot of sins if you just pay the right people. Our culture is obsessed with how we look, so this sort of makes sense to us with this passage. Uh, our, our culture is obsessed with how we care for our bodies. Just observe, uh, observe the, the ads in our media. Um, we pamper our body with creams to make us look younger and gels to keep our hairs in the right spot. I've got gel, I'm not lying. But, you know, my hair would stick up. I don't know, maybe I should just let it go. Um, we've got deodorants and perfumes and colognes that make, hypothetical people attracted to us, um, uh, shampoos that keep our hair looking a certain way, right? And we, we can buy expensive deionized water while much of the world can't even get clean drinking water. We can eat all organic if you're one of the few who can afford such a luxury, and we're told that all this is normal, all this is good, that you are a good American by participating in this endeavor, and if you don't think that any of those things have been an issue, have been an issue for you, you're slightly self-righteous right now, um, just ask yourself this question. How much do you think about yourself? <laughs> How much do we think? We spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. Whether it's the words we say or how we look or how we don't look, we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. And that's the point. Don't worry so much about you. And Jesus' point is the reason we don't have to worry so much about us and those outward things is because there's already someone who's doing a better job at it. And it's the Father. It's the Father. So who's supposed to care for all of these all of these folks who really don't have food and water and shelter and clothing. You know who often cares for the children of God? The children of God. Through his disciples. 
And that's why Jesus says in the same sermon, by the way, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus' disciples, we mourn for the impoverished and the oppressed. Jesus' disciples are to hunger and thirst and act in ways that reflect God's righteousness. And to engage in doing something about the evils in the world. We're supposed to seek the kingdom of God, but we don't lose sleep over the state of the world because we recognize that God is in control and promises to work all of those things for good in the end. And I think, you know, there's an element, this is a whole other sermon, or maybe in Bible study we can talk about this, or if you just want to have a side conversation, we can go out to coffee or something, but there's just a whole lot of interesting stuff about this passage being very related to what's called wisdom literature, like the Proverbs. And um, basically, it's not trying to give us a nuanced application about every worry you could possibly have in life. It's saying in general that worry simply can't do anything. Your worry can't accomplish the things that you're worried about. It's like, it's like foolishness, right? Just to, just to put it bluntly, like if this was wisdom literature, it might say the fool worries about things that he or she can't control. Just think how much energy we pour into worrying about things. And it doesn't change the outcome. Worry about what you can't control in the future, and it will rob you of being present to God now. It'll, it'll rob you from being present to your neighbor now. So what is the way forward here? <laughs> I mean, like, as much as we can say it's foolish to worry, like, everybody does it. Every, we all do it. So one of the things we can do is pay attention. That's one of the refrains that Jesus has in this, this thing. Pay attention to the birds. Pay attention to the flowers. Um, he says to pay attention and, and look at how lavishly the Father cares for them. And how much more will he care for you, like the apex of his creation? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean do nothing. Like, have you ever seen the birds get food? Like, they're hard workers. They're up at the break of dawn, and they're, you know, they're, they're doing their thing. Um, they have to navigate all kinds of peril. Um, neighborhood boys with BB guns. They have to, you know, the peril of bad weather and cats and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Like, there, there's dangers out there. So it's not easy. It's not easy. But the Father provides for them. And Jesus is also not saying it all depends on how hard you work. Because the point of these illustrations of observing is that the Father is the one who provides. It's not a statement really about you and me at all. It's a statement about the Father. And the Father's provision makes it clear that he is a God of creativity and abundance. You know, throughout history, people have taken this teaching to mean that, that Jesus is saying, have nothing. Despise the body. You don't need all that stuff. But that does not at all jive with the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus loves the body. He created the body. He sustains the body. Jesus loved to party. He brought, like created wine at one party, and he's often accused of being a drunk by the religious leaders. Um, Jesus hung around with the poor, and he also hung around with the rich. They all had bodies. And when he was crucified, his garments were nice enough for the guards uh, to gamble over. Like, he had nice enough clothes on for them to actually, like, let's cast lots, because I, 
those are expensive and I want some of that. You know what I mean? So, I mean, Jesus wasn't, I don't know what we think about him. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't like living the high life in the penthouse, but he cared about the good things in life. And Jesus is a realist. He's trying to tell us how things actually are. There's not enough voices in our world that want to tell us how things actually are. He's trying to tell us how things actually are. And he's saying, rather, he's not saying, don't worry because nothing bad will ever happen to you. He's not saying that. Jesus knows full well that until he returns and brings his kingdom in fullness and renews creation, he knows that life can be cruel. Yeah, God the Father does feed the birds of the air, but a lot of them die like every day. Yes, he clothes the flowers of the field. They're beautiful while they last. They don't last very long, even less when you cut them down. Yes, he provides enough for the whole world to eat, but he set up the world in such a way that we need to take care of each other, and when we fail to take care of each other, there are real and dire consequences. Jesus is not saying how everything will be worked out, and he's not saying how everything or when everything will be worked out. In fact, it wouldn't take any faith at all if we could see exactly when everything was going to happen for us. Remember, but remember that Jesus is the one preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the one who trusts the Father more than anyone else in his life and more than anything else in his life. But at the same time, Jesus, for all that trust in the Father, was frequently misunderstood And he probably felt distant a lot of the time from his own biological family. Like his mother and his brothers and sisters, a lot of times they just didn't get him. They thought he was crazy at different times in his ministry. Think of people that were closest to you because you were following God, thought you were nuts. And tried to apprehend you while you're, you know, like, like I'm preaching, right? Like Jesus was preaching at this house and his parents, tried, or his mom tried to come and take him. Like my mom showed up with my sister and brother and tried to pull me off the stage for really, we're worried about you, Chris. Um, they'd have a right to be for other things in my life, but you know, you know but, but, <laughs> Jesus is frequently misunderstood by his family, by his fellow Israelites. And he never made it in terms of worldly success At times, Jesus is really angry and frustrated, and he was betrayed, and he was consumed with anguish on different occasions. One one time in the Garden of Gethsemane, so bad, he broke capillaries in his face from crying, and blood came out of his face. But Jesus was not anxious about food or drink or clothing or his reputation because he was focused on his mission with the Father obedience to the Father, seeking the kingdom first and the righteousness of God, got him killed from a worldly perspective, but from a godly perspective, it served to rescue the entire world, to defeat evil and uh, ascend the grave and to reign and rule over all things. Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, don't obsess worry, be anxious about worldly things. 
You know, he says the Gentiles, that's the people that weren't Jewish or Christian at the time, usually pagans. He said, they're concerned about all these things, but you don't have to be. And he's not doing that to be like controversial. You know why the Gentiles were worried and concerned about worldly things? Because their worldview was dominated by fate. They just thought everything was already scripted. They believed that the fates controlled destiny, that life was like a big wheel of fortune, a futile game of chance, and the best you could do was to bribe the gods to see if they might stay your fate for a little while longer. And if you're living in that kind of life, then live it up while you can, because there's nothing better for you than to be on that wheel of fortune. But Jesus is teaching us that God isn't like that, that he's a father. And this is the father that we read about in Psalm 104, that, which Julia read earlier. He is the creator and sustainer of all living things. And the father knows when the smallest sparrow falls to the earth. And so how much more does he see you and know your, your pains and your joys and promise to Work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the Father that Jesus calls us to trust. We are all investors, maybe not in the stock market, but we're all investors in life. And the question is, in what or in whom will we put our faith? Jesus calls us to trust him. That's what repentance is all about. It's about turning from whatever else we're living for and choosing to trust our lives to Jesus. And that's something that we can do right now. So let's just take a moment to respond in our hearts to the Lord.